Welcome to Jesus Has Left the Building, where we talk with people leading creative, outside the box, I mean outside the church building, ministries that inspire and engage us. Our third season, recorded during Lent 2021, connects our desire to follow Jesus outside the church building and the recognition that Lent is an invitation to quiet our minds and hearts. Our guests share how they find nourishment as they build God's kingdom. This is the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast, where ministers, people of faith, activists, and church leaders have left the building too, with Marta and Mandy. Today's guest is Reverend Dr. Stephanie Rose Spaulding. Stephanie is an activist, public commentator, pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Colorado Springs, and associate professor of women's and ethnic studies at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. She is the author of Recovering from Racism, a guidebook to beginning conversations, and Abolishing White Masculinity from Mark Twain to Hip Hop, Crisis in Whiteness. We talk about her work in the world and where she finds seeds of devotion this Lent. In the spirit of prophet and mystic, or spirituality and social action, the inward journey and the outward reach teachers and conversational partners, we asked you here today because we know the work of Jesus, both in action and in rest, are important. Sometimes Jesus needs to leave the building to go to the other side of the lake by himself or up the mountain to the hillside. He dismisses the crowds or sends the multitude away. Often he was alone and simply prayed by himself. In some ways, we must begin within ourselves before we birth something new outside of ourselves. Lent is a time of planting seeds. We want to hear about your seeds of devotion. My husband, Roger, which who Stephanie knows quite well, um, and author, also author of The Seeds of Devotion, that is the book that is coinciding with these conversations, um, pre-pandemic would host these small, small gatherings around a meal and highlight the author. Um, they were often potluck dinners where he featured newly published authors. So in the summer of 2015 was the first of these potlucks and um, Stephanie Rose, Reverend Dr. Stephanie Rose Spaulding was the, his very first guest and author of this tradition that he started. And she was um, presenting her newly published book. I think it came out in 2014. Yes, Abolishing White Masculinity from Mark Twain to Hip Hop, <laughs> Crisis in Whiteness that came out in the year before. And in, it resulted in incredible conversation from a diverse group of people that evening. And so when it was done, you know, I had been working at First Congregational at the time. I Think No, I hadn't. I'd already left, but I was still dear friends with Reverend Dr. Dr. Benjamin Broadbent. Um, and afterwards, he came up to me, you know, I'm super reserved normally, especially like in big crowds. And he was like, oh my gosh, you really like her. And I was, I know, um, I was like, I do really like her. I was super captivated by your presentation about that book. 
Um, I mean, really what's not captivating about abolishing white masculinity, amen, (laughs) Um, right? Um, But this book, it examined white American male literature for its social commentary on the construction of whiteness in the United States. And I pulled that off of Amazon. Um, (laughs) So if anybody wants to go check it out, it's there. Um, And so, Since that time, we have watched you, we've been in relationship with you, we have watched you unfold God's kingdom, um, become a really, um, really prophetic voice in our local community, um, have unfolded God's kingdom in amazing ways, and we've watched you be this public servant that we have admired, and Um, So the quote that I pulled off of Google says, she is an astonishingly creative and vocal being whose expertise has made her a well-sought after speaker and leader. No wonder we love you. (laughs) I mean, that is kind of an amazing quote. It's true. We do. And I love you all. (laughs) We love you. Um, You know, following your work, Stephanie, has been such an important part of my own development as I try to work to bring about God's kingdom. But I have been so especially grateful for your presence throughout this year of the pandemic. You have put a lot of content out into the world this year. You have these great Sunday morning messages. You have these responses to literally all the things that have happened this year with regards to racial justice. You've put out these podcasts, these interviews. You've been super busy and you haven't missed a beat. Honestly, when something happens in the world, I often go straight to your Facebook page because I know that wherever you are leading, I want to follow and I want to know what you have to say. Um, so I'm just, Marta and I both are so grateful um, for this, this presence that you bring. So we want you to talk about, um, you know, there's so much, like there is, there, there's a lot of things in this first question that I'm gonna ask you. And so you can pick up on whatever you want. Um, but what, Um, You know, we want to hear about your work as prophetic public servant in the public arena um, in light of the BLM movement and racism, especially this year. But, you know, I know you have been doing that work for way more than um, just this year, obviously. Um, What's driving you? Where does it come from? Um, What formed you and transformed you to do this work? And really talk to us about the truth and conciliation project, what's happening with it right now, um, where's it going and headed it headed in the world. Absolutely. We'll be honest, just real quick, I just want to tell you, we'll be honest that Howard Thurman has inspired this conversation. So just <laughs> just so you know, the great Howard Thurman is sort of in the back of our brains. Awesome. Well, I, I can, I guess, start at the beginning with what informs me and transform me into doing this work. I grew up on the south side of Chicago in the, I got the tail end of the 70s, so mostly the 80s and 90s, um, in what is known just um, casually as well as academically as one of the most segregated places in the country, right? And that's not the south. This is the quote-unquote urban progressive north. 
And living in this community as a young person, um, there were both tremendous opportunities because of the way that segregation functioned and operated. Um, and when, when I say that, people are like, huh, scratching their head. I grew up, the vast majority of my teachers, um, 80%, if not more, were African-American. So when folks ask the question, when was the first time you had a black teacher? I'm like, always. <laughs> I could probably tell you when I first had a white teacher, um, but that's the way that uh, segregation was functioning. But then there's also the moments where I went to seventh and eighth grade in an advanced um, program that also connected us to high school early on. And I then was thwarted into a space that was almost a third, a third, a third, um, a third Latino, a third um, African-American and a third white. And navigating that in the midst of my home community really raised some, some pertinent issues, but it really got solidified when I went to Clark Atlanta University for undergrad. And being in a historically black university in a predominantly black city and seeing the way in which racism was still functioning and operating in predominantly homogenous racial space was just the game changer for me. Um, and it's really where I began to see the ways in which, even though I didn't have the language at the time for internalized oppression, I could see the ways in which whiteness as an ideology was functioning and operating in predominantly black space. And that is how mm. I came to doing work around race, um, critical race theory and um, anti-racism. And so from a sophomore in college, all the way through my PhD, carrying this idea around um, white supremacy and white ideology and, and the ways that it plays out in the United States just became part of my life work before it was um, colloquial to talk about white privilege, right? You know, now you can't get it off of CNN or MSNBC and even Fox News, right? Um, that every all cable news stations are talking about white privilege this in different ways, but it's right. more mm -hmm. colloquial now. So that is really how um, my ideological thinking got started. But also similarly, my activism, I jokingly say that if you are born in Chicago, you are given a pacifier and a clipboard because everybody's an organizer, <laughs> right? And organizing around something. I remember the church that I grew up in, um, that we would be circulating petitions to get on the ballot to make sure that our community was dry, right? And by dry, <laughs> for those who don't know, means that the sale of alcohol cannot take place in our, in our community, in our neighborhood. Um, I have different issues and concerns about that now as a, <laughs> as a public servant who understands like economic drivers of the communities. But still knowing what organizing um, looked like at an early age. And so 
in a lot of ways being groomed to intellectualize and think about certain things, but also being activated from a very young space to, to do something about what I was thinking. It wasn't enough to just have ideas. Um, those ideas lived in our, lived out in society, in our community. And so that is really how I began to mesh what I was thinking with the work that I was doing. Again, I was at an historically black university, so I was organizing to raise money for United Negro College Fund to make sure that others had access to, to go to college and to get scholarships and, um, even then organizing around colorism on campus. I was a poet. I was like everything. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and just really trying to educate and, and shift the needle. And so by the time I got to Colorado Springs, um, it was, it was just a part of who I am to be extremely vocal about the issues and the concerns that I witnessed plaguing um, community and to try to do something to shift and to change that. And so when we get to the Truth and Conciliation Commission, um, that is decades of years, almost 21 years of like feet to the ground doing this work and becoming frustrated by the slow pace of movement, the cyclical nature of white racial violence and harm in the US because we came to the summer and another black body being killed by state sanctioned violence, um, white state sanctioned violence um, in the murder of George Floyd that was on the heels of the murder of Ahmaud Aubrey, which was on the heels of the murder of Breonna Taylor. And for me, you know, the riots were a good sign that people were paying attention, but they were also another sign of here we are again, you know, and how do we stop coming back to the same place? And that is the that is why the Truth and Conciliation Commission was birthed to try to disrupt that cycle of harm, um, outrage, news media, public attention, um, you know, dying down to just a smoldering fire, to harm again, news attention, all all of those things. Um, and so here we are. <laughs> Here we are in the aftermath of still working to disrupt that cycle. So can you, um, th th that's an awesome story and I loved hearing it. And I'm, and I'm just, I want, you know, Zoom is so hard cause you know, I want to like interrupt and you, it's hard to interrupt. I mean, I don't want to interrupt, <laughs> but you get my point. But um, can you go back to your college years real quick? And can you give one example of what you witnessed and experienced there that sort of just sparked your imagination around all of the race issues? I mean, because you know, like you were at an all black college, but at the same time, you, you saw some things that needed attention. Can you give like one example of what that looked like? Absolutely. So Clark Atlanta University is one of, at the time, six universities or colleges in the Atlanta University Center. 
So Morehouse College, Spelman College, Morehouse School of Medicine, Clark Atlanta University, Morris Brown College, which just uh, regained their accreditation. So they are back. And um, ITC, Interdenominational Theological Center. So all of these historically black institutions are um, in the geographical space for those who are in Colorado of five points, right? Like they literally are campuses on top of each other or even sharing space, um, but very distinct campuses, right? So even before I got to Clark Atlanta, my sister was at Spelman and which is a whole nother story for a whole nother podcast of how I got to Clark Atlanta instead of Spelman, but divinely was the place for me to be and not Spelman and not, and that's not a diss on Spelman. It's just like the distinctiveness of the institutions and what they offer. So before I even got to Atlanta, my sister was home and, um, was sharing stories and making comments and saying things like, well, if you're going to go to Clark Atlanta, you better get all A's because it ain't Spelman, right? So that was like the first like eyebrow raising of, you know, just this elitism about the kind of academic quality of um, the institutions there, right? And then um, by the time that I got there, I would hear very, very problematic internalized racist stuff. For example, um, there there were like colloquial sayings that Morehouse men write with pens, Clark Atlanta guys write with pencil, and Morris Brown, um, they use crayons, right? And it's it was utterly problematic because one, Morris Brown was the only institution in the AUC actually founded by black people, right? Mm. All of the others were mm. um, found by um, white proprietors and um, different sorted, uh, you know, miscegenated fathers who were trying to do something with their kids in some mm. kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, so there was there was white interest in the, the shaping of a number of those institutions but not Morris Brown, right? Morris Brown was specifically founded by black people for black people. Um, and other things like, you know, you get your wives from Spelman, your girlfriends from Clark Atlanta and your whores from Morris Brown. Mm, mm -hmm. So stuff like that was just like mm -hmm. rubbing me wrong <laughs> even before I was like an actual student <laughs> in the mm -hmm. AUC. Um, and, and it just, you know, it, I won't say that it got worse, but it, it became more revelatory by being a student in the AUC for four years. Those are the stories actually that are, um, those are just really perfect visual, um, distinctive, um, easily understandable stories that root this country in racism um, that I that are easy for people to be like, okay, yep, I get it. I can hear that, right? So that's why I sort of wanted you to tell that story a little bit. So thank you for doing that. Absolutely. Yeah, and Stephanie, I, I've heard you and others. Um, in fact, I think you mentioned this maybe in your um, 
video from Thursday. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, whiteness as a mentality as opposed to, you know, like a skin color, like um, how, how that just, can you just speak a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So just in a, a general sense, when we talk about race, we are talking about an ideological um, social construct, right? What does that mean? Very multisyllabic words or what have you. Um, that means that, that what people perceive to be fundamental about biology, DNA, or anything like that, DNA and biology does not determine race. Um, and the American Anthropological Association has complete statements. Like if you just Google the American Anthropological Association, their whole statement will come up about the fact that race is not biologically real. The DNA between um, me and Marta is probably closer than, um, you know, than the DNA between me and Kamala Harris, you know? So um it just isn't a bio biological reality however it is an idea that we have accepted and utilized for centuries um approximately five to six hundred cent centuries to allocate resources and power in specific societies and so as a social construct as an idea that people in a community accept the easiest way that i can teach or share for for people um students or what have you to to make it real for them that it's it's socially constructed because they want to come, folks want to come back to like, well, no, melanin is real. And the way that melanin functions and operates in, in some people's skin versus not being in some other people's skin is what gives us race. And I'm like, yes, but if you're in India and you think about the people who live literally in India, not the place that Columbus thought he discovered, <laughs> but if you're in India, they're really, really dark skinned people that have high levels of melanin but you would not classify them as being black. And so if that is not true in that society, and then if you come to the Dominican Republic, <laughs> you can also see people with higher levels of melanin who are legally classified as white. So in order for it to be a biological certainty, it would have to be the same in every society but it's not. So when we come to whiteness, whiteness is a product of the invention of race. And even being white as a person, James Baldwin will tell you in a very beautiful essay called On Being White and Other Lies, published in Essence in 1984, which you can Google as well, um, <laughs> that whiteness, white identity is something that was bought into as a part of upholding an idea. So whiteness in and of itself is a product of a larger idea that 
a lot of people have an investment in maintaining. And it's not just people who have white skin or what we articulate as white skin. There are so many people who embrace ideas that are rooted in white supremacist ideology, i.e. whiteness, that have nothing to do with their racial classification. If I am in an argument espousing that non-native English speakers need to speak American, that is a reflection of white ideology. Because one, American is not a language. <laughs> Two, the United States of America has no official language. And three, the idea that English would be the dominant language that, that people must learn in order to function and operate in an inclusive way is preposterous and rooted and, and grounded in a very um, ideological perspective. Right, I think that's so helpful, um, especially for people who are coming to um, recognize um, racial injustice in our world in this moment, you know, mm -hmm. like there are these terms that get thrown around um, and because we have white fragility and we're, you know, we've got these big egos and everything, I think sometimes we hear words and may immediately shut down. And mm -hmm. those, those definitions I think are just helpful um, if we can get people to hear them, to understand that, that, that these things are so much more nuanced and deeper. And, you know, as we um, know, nothing is actually ever black and white, um, right. like not even race. Um, so like, just, I think that it's so helpful. And I know that we have listeners out there who that is going to be a really important kind of profound revelation, really. Absolutely. Yeah, Mandy really opened the door for a conversation on truth and conciliation because language matters, right? As we are working to convey the ideas that we are constructing, the, the precision of language matters. And it's why this commission calls for truth and conciliation as opposed to truth and reconciliation. So many people have come to take the terms as being like a package deal, right? Truth and reconciliation since the, the South African um, commission at, at the fall of apartheid on truth and reconciliation, they being the first in the globe to do such a commission. But as I was processing the events of 2020, and even in some ways before working in community, doing racial justice work, the idea, the legal term to reconcile means to go back to a place of mutual respect and agreement. So if you think about that in the context of racial violence and racial harm in the United States, 
what would be the place? Right. right. Uh, it's never happened. It's right. never happened. There we can't actually no make America great again. <laughs> again. <laughs> right. um, so there is no mutual space to return to of respect and agreement in this place that we call America. And I say America deliberately because it's not just about the United States. It is the age of exploration in and of itself, which was christened and ordained, and I'm specifically using that language, by the Pope in 1452 that articulated to European Christians their power to go out into the world and claim space that might have belonged to others, but did not matter for them because they were not Christian. And so they were savage and not worthy. And this is the language of, of the, the Pope, of that papal bull, that they were savage and not worthy of possession of space land that they had been, that folks have been occupying, right? This is why Columbus is like, I can discover, you know, this, this place. And Amerigo Vespucci's name is everywhere. Um, so the first thing in disrupting this cycle that we find ourselves in in the United States is to tell the truth. And that first baseline truth is we can't reconcile anything. <laughs> like there is nothing to reconcile as it relates to white racial violence in this place. So once we know that, and when I mean know that, there's a whole lot of unlearning that has to happen for a lot of people on multiple sides of the aisle. Um, Mark Charles' work would say, even for African-Americans that want to start in 1619, because that leaves out 100 years of genocide to indigenous people, there's a whole lot of learning what that truth is before we can get to conciliation, which is the act and the process of making agreement <laughs> and developing what is conciliatory practice. Yeah, that's really good. So um, if you had one like history book that you would have us read that started at that beginning, what would it be? Oh my God. You, that, can, you can think about it. You can think about it. It's fine. You can you but don't it's do it right so now. It's so funny that you're asking because, um, because right now the work of truth and conciliation is um, preparing. We are, we're hosting a summit in June um, to honor our one year anniversary, the, weekend, the week of Juneteenth. And- okay. Part of that work is to provide a curriculum that that people could use and, you know, to unlearn a lot of the things that they have learned. And some of that curriculum is just primary documents, right? Mm -hmm. Like you probably need to, people probably need to read the, the papal bull that gave mm -hmm. rise to... Um, the doctrine of discovery, 
which again, Mark Charles has a fantastic um, TED talk about the doctrine of discovery that has been used as late as Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right. I, we are still using this in our legal system today. So when you ask for the one book, we are like trying to narrow it down to 12, you know? <laughs> Oh, well, I need your list, Stephanie. <laughs> so we, we are in the process of, of creating this list. And as soon as it's finalized, <laughs> I, will, I will send it to you. There will be a, a list of 12 primary documents and then a list of 12 um, analytical or analyses around race and um, its impact and construction in the U.S. So as soon as it's done, I will send it to you. <laughs> Okay, that's awesome. And that's I so think great. that if, if people want to um, learn more about it, um, they can Google truth and conciliation um, and check some things out on your website, correct? Yep, truthandconciliation.org. And sign Perfect. the pledge. And sign the pledge and, and then join us for our summit in June. Awesome. Will it be virtual or is it in, gonna be in real life, do you know? going to be all virtual so people anywhere can join that's right and that's like the third week in june yep it will be the week of june 15th through the 19th perfect, perfect. um okay so we didn't we didn't mention all of the things that you are working on in the world, but there are a lot of things. I mean, it's gonna, it comes up a little bit in um, us, in your bio, in your introduction um, as a professor um, at UCCS and with all your students and as a pastor with your congregants and, and then all of this other work, um, you're just so sought out in so many ways and such a public figure at this point. Um, and in the spirit of Lent and being in the cave, being, um, you know, that seed that is um, going to birth something new, where do you find those seeds of devotion? What do you do? Um, what are some of your practices? Um, you know, Jesus would go up by himself up on the top of a mountain and pray for a minute. Um, so this may seem... For, for some and for others, it may be like, yes, that's exactly what you should be doing. Might seem carnal and superficial, but this year I have really committed myself to um, focusing and in a very like devout way on my physical health. Mm -hmm. um, one, running for office, I gained all the campaign weight that was possible to gain <laughs> and running for three years straight, you know, for two different yeah. things. Um, so there's that. And then being in the midst of a pandemic, you know, our health is like, you know, front and foremost, especially for communities of color that this proportionately are dying as it relates to this pandemic. Um, and then being really mindful of my own family history as I get older, as it relates to other health concerns. So my like very committed practice has been 
being more conscientious of what I do to this body. And, um, and I was just like the other day on the, you know, the exercise and making do with the places that I, you know, and the access that I have to equipment in the middle of a tundra. Like it's a, like, you know, the United States is frozen over half, half of the country. Um, and I was just like, oh my gosh, this has not ever been so for me. But like just being on the bike was just so peaceful. I was like, I need this like right mm-hmm. now, you know? Um, and that has not really ever been the case. And whether I lose weight, air quote or not, it was just like peaceful. I have like the little $40 under your desk bike. Yep. She rides it um, all the time. I'm like, what I know does people, that sound? Oh, no, you're I, your bike. I, like my dad has one of those and like the bike bike, the back was messing up. So I switched to like the pedals and I'm like, I just need to be in this chair on these pedals <laughs> right now. I know. And it's actually hard, like while you're trying to do other things. Yes. <laughs> but it's also very like, oh my God, I, I am you know, counting calories while I'm on the phone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, it is good. And I actually think that, um, that kind of practice during Lent is, I hope that some, some people will just think about that. Um, I mean, I also know that you are a huge prayer. Um, yes. And I I, am doing like that too, but in some ways, you know, like the spiritual practice I felt like I I was good at like getting to that, but so much other stuff laying it by the wayside. And, you know, I I think that the manifestation of Christ is about all of our, like our whole collective self. Right. Absolutely. The whole package. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I find, you know, Mm -hmm. when I am the most busy, that's when like, you know, I eat cookies for breakfast, lunch, and dinner because they're just like right there, you know, but Lent is this time to slow down and put some of that aside. And so, um, and I think, especially for me, like, cause I'm a walker, I like to walk. <laughs> it makes me feel so much better. And I, like, why do we forget that? Why do we forget that taking care of our bodies mm-hmm actually like getting my butt out of the chair and going for that walk actually is going to make me feel better. And it's so connected to like good stewardship, right? You know, um, if, if, if we are not faithful with little things, then how can we be faithful with much? Right. And the first thing that we are given stewardship over is our body Mm. (laughs) and how we treat and, and what we put inside and, And to your point, you know, like focusing on what I'm eating makes me slow down. Like to have to actually cook at home and not be like, but DoorDash is right there. (laughs) (laughs) But to actually have to cook and to prepare a meal and to think about what ingredients I need like four days ahead of time, because nobody wants to be like the day of, oh, I want this and don't have the ingredients. Um, so it makes you, if it physically makes you, mentally makes you slow down and be conscientious about yep. what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It's like a ritual it's a, and a prayer in itself. 
doing those types of things. Next week, we are joined by Father Terry Haroon as she shares her work and her seeds of devotion with us. We hope you join us. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Find us on Facebook at Black Forest Community Church, United Church of Christ. And message us to learn how you can be a part of this effort to tell stories, have conversations, build relationships, and follow Jesus out of the church and into the world. To support our work, search for Black Forest Community Church on Venmo to make a one-time donation or a regular commitment with as little as $1 a month. You'll get regular communications and updates about our stories. Thank you to all those people that support and listen. We could not do this without you.